Hello and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. I'm Zoe Cunningham. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us to shine a light through turbulent times. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Joanna Smith, who is currently the Interim CIO at University Hospital Sussex. Hello, Joanna, and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. Hi, Zoe. Thrilled to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's kick off. What would be the most accurate way to describe your position, your role and where you work now? So I'm an interim CIO and I'm also fractional. That means I'm not actually full time. And this is because I've chosen to embark on a portfolio career as I'm now at the sort of end of my career and I want a little bit more flexibility. So I have a few clients, but my main client, the one that I work for 16 days a month at the moment, is the University Hospitals of Sussex. And in that organisation, I lead the IT teams, including data, coding, health records, information governance, about 400 odd people in one of the largest trusts in the country. Wow, fantastic. And so for you, you find that working for lots of different organisations, I guess, gives you new ideas and you can share ideas between organisations. Yes, and I I really enjoy people. I'm very much a people person. So for me, I'm a, a sum of the parts is definitely not as great as the sum of the whole. It gives me an opportunity to stay up to date and current. But I do also like being an operational leader, someone who's actually delivering a service, which is why I tend to have one interim role, which is three or four days a week, and then some smaller advisory or consulting roles. Yeah, it's very different, isn't it, to be in that kind of chunky hands-on kind of role versus just kind of saying oh you should do this yes I I really get that so what is it that you enjoy most about working in technology I think it's the fact that I see the benefit that sort of technology can enable in a business I'm not particularly thrilled with tech for the sake of tech Mm -hmm. I'm actually probably quite a bad tech user my, my IT teams tend to find me very intolerant of things that don't work perfectly and aren't really intuitive. But for me, it's the fact that I can see what tech can do for an organisation, whether it's efficiency, whether it's innovation. It just enables an organisation to be even better. Mm, and that's actually a great perspective to have, to be the user who says, I'm only using this if it makes my life easier, because actually some of the worst technology implementations that I've seen come when the engineers using it are like, oh, but it's simple. You just click here, click here, do this. And everyone else yes. is like, what? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think that's the point. That's, you know, I've come from a business background and I didn't start my life in technology. I didn't come through technology as a deep techie. So I've always been someone who's been business facing understanding business problems and then seeing how tech can help but if the answer is a simple spreadsheet rather than a clever big system the answer is a simple spreadsheet you know absolutely so you've worked in the pharmaceutical industry as well as the NHS so can you share your thoughts on the main differences between and I, I mean I guess the similarities as well Yes. So, I mean, I think so the positive similarities is they're both very much focused on ultimately caring for people and doing great things for people. One is about discovering new medications and treatments. The other is both that as well as care, obviously. I think for me, the fundamental difference is an apologies in advance if this doesn't sit well with everybody. 
I think pharmaceuticals have had to become quite lean and mean. It's a highly competitive world. It isn't one or two big guys. It's hundreds of organisations. So they have to be uber efficient and they use technology to do that really well, including understanding data as they process a drug through a life cycle. In the NHS, it is still hugely manual and the tech is trying to catch up and there is a bit of a culture of resistance to change. And it's, it's you know, something that's been there a long time. It's not about an individual or teams or departments. And so making change in the NHS is much harder because there isn't the same ability to dictate the centre could but doesn't mandate real extreme statements. Mm. So the centre does not say to 240 trusts, you will use Dell or you will use this one system. And they've all got different priorities and the trusts are different, mental health, tertiary, then primary care. It's different. So that makes it a lot harder to drive change at pace in a consistent way. Whereas a large global company can drive that from the top as a strategy in a relatively short number of years. Yes, that's so interesting because obviously one of the great things about the NHS is that we don't cut off the funding. The the NHS is well funded so that we can provide great care to people. But like you say, there is that kind of commercial driver that comes when you have to adopt technology or your business is going to go out of existence. And so I can see that that's going to create a very different working environment and a different rate of technological uptake, I guess. Yes, and that's exactly right, actually. You said the right word there in terms of existence. There isn't really, at a grassroots level, there isn't a sense of existential threat to the NHS. Others may see that longer term at a very strategic level, but at the shop floor that isn't seen because, as you say, although I don't think many people in the NHS would say it's (laughs) well-funded, you're right, it is funded in that whatever happens, there is always some form of solution, whereas... In commercial land, you go out of business, you know, something major changes. I worked in pharmaceuticals when the limited list, which was the introduction of generic prescribing, came in, I think 1985, and that took 35% of our Roche at that time, their profits, off the line straight away overnight. That just meant mass redundancies, wholesale cuts in budgets overnight. That sort of thing doesn't really happen to the NHS. You know, it raises the very large question of what is it going to take to change the NHS and improve it for the future? What are the strategies that we can take? So so I personally, I would like to see the centre dictate more, but I know that's quite a politically sensitive thing to say. The National Programme for IT tried to do that. It was broadly considered the National Programme was unsuccessful. It did some good things, but you know, generally, if you Google biggest IT failure, the National Programme for <laughs> IT is still up there at the top or close to now. But I do think that we've either got to accept it's going to take a very long time, or we do need to be a little bit braver and mandate some things. And one of the things I asked when I first arrived in 2013 was why are we still allowing NHS Trust to build data centres? Why are we not just having a national data centre strategy, outsource it to one or two partners, have two or three geographically dispersed sensibly data centres, and then over time move everyone into those? Why don't we standardise on networks and devices to get the economies of scale? 
And the answer is, you know, there's a discomfort with mandating because of the history of the national programme. And I think until we do that, it will inevitably take a very long time because you're waiting for each trust to get it to the same place. Now, there are obviously incentives through funding. You know, there's the latest programmes about every trust must have an EPR by March 25. So there are things that are to be done. But what's the consequence of failure of not meeting those targets? Well, to your point, some heads might roll individually, but collectively nothing much changes. Yeah, and you can actually see why there could be this reluctance at the centre when the consequence of getting a, a kind of national IT strategy wrong is you will be on the list and remembered forever yes, yes. as someone who got it wrong, yes. whereas doing it right per se, you know, there's almost this kind of sense of, well, you know, it's hard, It's a hard issue. Is it anyone's one problem that they haven't, you know, completely fixed it? So I can see that that's a big challenge. And I suppose one of the questions is, is there the tech expertise at the centre to get this right? Or is it just a question of the right information's there? It's just making sure those voices are heard. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, to be honest, there are some brilliant people in the NHS. You know, I I know a lot of really good people in the centre, particularly out in the different trusts. Real determination. I'm hugely impressed by some of my colleagues. You know, I am not worthy by comparison to some of these folks who have been here such a long time and are so passionate and determined. So there are great people there. And they know what the answer is. I just think it is that recognition that unless it's mandated, that back to that sense of a global organisation who can mandate, if it's not mandated, there's just other priorities. You know, we have buildings where, you know, windows are falling out. So the priorities are different. Each trust has a different challenge and the board is trying to juggle all of those things. I Genuinely, I think... I don't know what the answer is otherwise, other than accepting it will take a long time, government putting more funding in in order to help, and perhaps some mandates around things that really wouldn't be so controversial, as I say, things like your network provider, your data centres, your devices, really those are commodities. Whereas when you start talking about which system to use, you've got to get clinicians using those systems. That's a little a little different. Right. And and perhaps there are different specialisms and different yes. requirements, right? Of course. It's so interesting. I just heard a, a perspective recently that, you know, it's one of those things you hear and you go, oh, yes, exactly, which is pretty much what you're saying, that all of the political parties want to make savings through efficiency gains. And, you know, through improving systems so that so that they cost less and we get more value. However, no one's really owning up at the moment to the fact that to get those efficiency gains, you have to spend more in the short term. Yes. They don't, they don't just turn up for free. You have to invest in order to save. Yes, exactly right. And, you know, the things that you need to invest in are some things also that the NHS struggles with. So, you know, the marketplace for really good technology skills is more than the day rates they really want to pay. And so that constrains. And so it's not just about being given the money to buy a thing. It's having the money to properly implement and then manage it. And then that that introduces more and more managed service ideas. But that's a revenue model, not a capital model. And we typically tend to get more capital than revenue. And also then there's the impact on existing roles. And that gets into that difficult topic that the NHS doesn't really like to do redundancy. It's committed to redeployment, not redundancy. 
And again, those are the things that a commercial organisation doesn't have the same problems with. Because again, you you have to do what it takes to survive, right? We all, yes. we all behave differently when our life is threatened. Yes, yes. <laughs> so to take a, a more positive slant, which parts of technology are you most excited about for healthcare coming up? I mean, there are a number. The obvious one is still all around data. There is no doubt that if we understand data better, you know, we can treat people better, we can design better pathways of care, we can potentially prevent, we can keep people at home better. The remote technologies, both whether it's telemonitoring devices or just remote consultations, mean that we can be having more of the virtual ward concept expanding, so we can be treating people at home to avoid them coming in. We can be treating people at home after sort of discharging them promptly, then technology enables all of that. So for me, that's almost an operational level that's not particularly exciting, but I think arguably almost makes the biggest difference. And then there's the really exciting stuff, robotics, AI, all of those things, which, you know, I'm seeing amazing things. I was at an event recently and a clinician presented how they're actually doing surgery in the metaverse they're actually having people wearing the the hollow lens and interacting with clinicians in different parts of the world in theater while they're operating so they're taking that concept of multidisciplinary team working to the next level now that's really exciting i'm not so sure how much of a game changer that is versus just preventing people having to be admitted and getting them home faster. And those are more now, more basic technologies. Absolutely. I have to say that I completely agree with you that as a long-term technologist, the changes that are most fundamental are the new applications of established technology rather than the kind of cutting edge creative ideas for what could we do. Actually, there's so much value in really taking solid technologies, but using them to such great effect. Like for how, how many people does it worsen their condition or add an extra burden for them to have to travel in order to be seen and treated? How incredible, not just in terms of saving time and money, which it does as well, but actually improving the experience of those patients. I think that's absolutely incredible. We've all got our personal um, examples, but for me, right this weekend, so my husband's he has a number of underlying conditions. You know, he's quite a poorly man. And over this last week, he was clearly deteriorating a little in terms of more tired, more breathless. You know, we were worrying, has he got a bit of an infection? It's incredibly hard to get a GP appointment. And as a result of that, you kind of wait another day, you wait another day, you get to the weekend and actually one, 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 we have always found with him to be quite successful because because of his health conditions, they don't take any chances. So embarrassingly, they rush an ambulance out. But I didn't want that. I just wanted, frankly, antibiotics. But they rush him out. It turns out he had sepsis, you know, caught it in time. So he's, he's still in uh, majors now. He was in recess for 12 hours. But that could probably have all been avoided if we'd had easy, prompt access to a clinician who could have looked at him, taken a few simple diagnostics and said, need you on some strong antibiotics now. And I'm not blaming anyone. It's just the circumstances we find ourselves in. The GPs are hugely overloaded. It's very, very difficult. But when we had COVID, everything was done remotely. And actually, bizarrely, you could speak to your doctor far easier during COVID because they only did remote. 
Now they've opened up practices again, it seems to have got very, very difficult to get appointments with your doctor. Yeah, it seems to be this funny situation now that lots of people are complaining they get remote appointments, but they can't get a remote appointment today. There's somehow now a a massive queue. Yes, uh... but I just want to be clear, you know, he's always had fantastic care. I'm very sympathetic, but I think that's an example where the technology, he could have been prevented from having to be at a critical point that then took emergency resources and time that could have been prevented and it wasn't for us not wanting to but we just didn't we didn't know it was urgent enough to press it right because you're not trained medical professionals right yes let's chat a bit more about the pandemic because I think it's such an interesting almost inflection point really both in terms of medicine and the incredible coming together and the development of these vaccines that have changed the landscape in terms of you look at the beginning of the pandemic and the end of the pandemic and alongside that we were at the right point I guess in terms of technology that already existed to be able to harness that and enable you know remote healthcare remote working in a way that hadn't been seen before yes so what was what was kind of your experience of that being in the middle of it it was fantastic because as you say a lot of the trusts not all of course a lot of the trusts had already got some level of remote connectivity you know being technical they'd got vpns people had got laptops And they were doing, um, in many cases, remote consultations were already happening, but in a very limited way, very much driven by a particular clinician who wanted, as you say, cystic fibrosis. Why bring them in? Why not talk to them at home? For many trusts, actually being given permission to suddenly do that at speed, some of the vendors providing equipment for free to support that. You know, some of these unsung heroes who don't get a mention – It swept away all the barriers and it was fantastic. Other trusts didn't have that in place, but again were supported to just make it so. And again, with great vendor community support. So that was wonderful to watch. At least that's still there. That can't be taken away. So it's still all there. But, you know, then to see us going back to the difficulties of approvals and, you know, all those things that are really important, but... It was a wonderful time, to be honest. It was a wonderful time, not not from the impression right, yes, of course, yes. side, but from the ability to react quickly, as you say, with proven technology, with the barriers removed, because we, back to existential, mm-hmm. actually that was, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. And we showed what we could do. And if we could just take some of that and put it in the mix as normal, wouldn't that be great? Well, on that note, thank you so much, Joanna. I have enjoyed our chat so much. And I really hope this helps us to to shine a light for others.